Hello and welcome to the IMB podcast brought to you by the communication cell and student media cell of IIM Bangalore. The new podcast series aims to become a platform to discuss the latest business, economic, management and social issues that matter. The podcast will witness IIM Bangalore fraternity including but not limited to the faculty members, students, alumni provide their insights and perspectives to the topic and issues that surround us. The emergence of digital dashboards and contact tracing apps have brought back the issue of privacy to the limelight. The apps collect way more privacy intrusive information than required. With the prevailing lack of transparency as to how the data is being stored and used, the loss of trust among users may result in citizens withdrawing from sharing accurate information. For today's podcast, we have with us Professor Rajendra K. Bandi from the Information Systems area at IIM Bangalore. Professor Bandi is the chair Information Systems as well as chair Center of Software and Information Technology Management at IIM Bangalore. Prior to joining IIM Bangalore, he was an assistant professor at Florida Gulf Coast University, Fort Myers, USA. He has also been a member of Technical Advisory Panel, Department of IT, Karnataka Government. Professor Bandi will help us understand the importance of data privacy in the current COVID times and how making all these data collecting applications open source will help us build a system of trust so that people will share accurate information. Welcome, Professor. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be exploring the issue of data privacy, especially in this COVID times. Professor, just to set the context for our listeners, how do you view data privacy in India? And why in the last four or five years has it become a key discussion point across a wide spectrum of stakeholders? Okay. Uh... Uh, why is it become a, a key issue in India? I'm glad it has become a, a key issue in India. It should have become uh, much earlier as we become what I call a digital uh, society or a computing enabled uh, society. Uh, it is quite obvious that pretty much everything that we do, both in our personal and professional lives, uh, we have to interface with uh, technology. and we either on a voluntary basis or otherwise uh, at different points of time part with a whole range of uh, information about ourselves, about our uh, our lifestyle uh, with various agencies, be it government agencies and or with uh, private agencies. So the question is what happens to this data, uh, how it gets used, Uh, how much do people know about me and how much am I in control about what people know about me becomes an important uh, issue. It's not that privacy was not important prior to uh, the digital technologies coming in. Privacy always has been uh, a matter of uh, concern. However, digital changes the, uh, the game substantially because of the reach of the uh, information because of the the scope and the speed with which uh, information gets uh, uh, transmitted, right? So that kind of adds additional dimensions in terms of how much control do you have, and therefore privacy becomes a, uh, a more significant factor in today's context than it ever was before. Professor, as you mentioned, that privacy has always been an important discussion point. But a digital adoption has brought back the debate over privacy again in limelight. 
Can we also say that the pandemic is one of the triggers for the discussion, especially after the launch of contact tracing apps like India's Arogya Setu? Yes and no. Uh, pandemic uh, is to some extent uh, kind of increased the awareness of this uh, uh, issue because pretty much there is nobody who is not touched by this. Okay. Uh, even prior to this, uh, if I just step back a couple of years, if you are talking of the Aadhaar uh, implementation and the debate about the implementation, the key issue around implementation was exactly uh, the same thing about privacy. Uh, however, uh, around Aadhaar, the discussion was to a great extent uh, kind of confined to people from the academia, people from the civil society and those who do work in the privacy segments. Most other people, the common man, didn't really understand what the privacy implications of uh, Aadhaar were. Because it was seen as one more card that is given. Uh, I had a ration card, I had various other cards before, I have, now it is one more card. And I'm told that if you don't have this, you don't get the services. So in that context, people did not, many did not think much about the privacy implications. But what COVID has done is because of, uh, while there are a number of technologies uh, which are being deployed during uh, this pandemic, it is the contact tracing app, uh, which pretty much reaches everyone who has a, a mobile phone. And that kind of uh, hits this uh, issue home much harder than uh, any of the previous uh, debates were. So to that extent, while the debate was is not new, it has been there. Uh, there is a vigorous debate uh, which has been there for uh, the past few years around Aadhaar and around many other uh, uh, implementations. Uh, Aadhaar has kind of a increase the, the reach and pretty much everybody who you talk to uh, has some opinion on this uh, contact tracing apps, positive, negative uh, or otherwise. Professor, as you rightly mentioned that common people are unaware of the implications of implementing Aadhaar on privacy. So in a larger context, do we undervalue our privacy, especially as compared to the countries in the West? And under the guise of implementing digital solutions, have we shrugged off privacy concerns under the carpet? Okay, there are multiple questions uh, uh, in that. Uh, one is, do we uh, as a country value that data privacy? I would think we are no different from any other country uh, as people. Having said that, uh, it is true and we need to recognize and acknowledge that the awareness about uh, what the data privacy implications are uh, as we become a digital uh, society is not as high as one would uh, see in some other countries. In particular, uh, I would say, uh, say if you were to compare it with the European countries or even within the European countries, if you say, if you compare with the Scandinavian uh, countries, there, there is a, a much better uh, awareness of uh, the privacy uh, implications. And of course, what you see happening in those countries in terms of uh, how they take on uh, issues 
with Facebook and uh, some other other social media companies is quite different from how we as a country have taken up. That is uh, uh, answering the question uh, of India as a uh, as a uh, nation uh, of uh, people of who we are. When it comes to the question of uh, who are the entities uh, who are kind of engaged in capturing and storing data and therefore uh, uh, are culpable to some extent uh, of uh, any data privacy uh, violations, I think you need to see two broad uh, uh, stakeholders. One is the uh, private enterprises with whom we share a whole bunch of data about ourselves. And two is the government with whom we also share uh, data about ourselves. I would say in, in both these cases, it is true that uh, privacy concerns have been have taken a, a, a backseat under the guise of you know, accelerating uh, digitalization of the country uh, and so on and so forth, or a necessity for the uh, economic development of the uh, country, uh, both of these. Having said that, one should uh, draw a distinction between the way I see the private enterprises and uh, how they address the privacy concerns and the government. The private enterprises, to some extent, as a citizen, I have a choice of uh, whether or not I would want to use a particular service from a particular uh, 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 corporate entity. Whereas when it comes to the government, I have no choice because I have to, uh, I'm mandated to submit certain data to the government if I want to continue to be a responsible citizen in the country. That could be, uh, say, for example, my need uh, to apply for a passport. That could be, for example, my need uh, uh, to submit my tax returns and so on and so forth. If, if I need to get a, a voter's ID, I have to necessarily submit. It is not a question of a choice. So the implications of how uh, the government uh, handles this issue of privacy concerns would be very different from the implications of how the private sector uh, handles this, while well, both are important. So as a citizen, I would be much more concerned about the, uh, uh, the government gathering data and how the government tackles this issue of uh, privacy. Another aspect that governs the effectiveness of any public digital initiative is the building of an ecosystem of trust. Contact tracing apps request personal sensitive information from the users. Without an assurance of how personal data will be handled, there is bound to be a trust deficit leading to ineffective usage. This also resonated with the big tech hearing as it was popularly called where the heads of Amazon, Apple, Google and Facebook were questioned on their data selling practices. Professor, how do we build this ecosystem of trust so that people share accurate information? Okay, that's a key uh, question but I will answer it in a broader sense. Contact tracing as we discussed of course uh, uh, drives home the importance of this, uh, but there is a whole range of technology that uh, is being used and many of them being used uh, with very positive uh, uh, impacts uh, and some which are uh, of serious uh, concern. But as you rightly asked me, uh, one of the key aspects and not the sole aspect, the key aspect is that of trust. 
what kind of a trust are we uh, uh, talking of and why is the trust uh, important okay uh, if i just come back to uh, contact tracing app uh, and we can discuss it in that context but you can i'm sure you can extend it to any other usage of uh, technology okay the primary uh, focus of contact tracing app depends uh, the, the efficiency or the efficacy of this app rather depends on uh, two things one is what percentage of the population uh, downloads and keeps this app active all the time right it is not just sufficient to download the app you need to have your uh, 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 gsm uh, wi-fi uh, on uh, and you need to have your uh, Bluetooth on in the case of Aragi uh, Setu in our country. Okay, that is one. The second uh, thing is uh, it depends on the quality of information each of us, if you have downloaded the app, it, the quality of information that you have provided about yourself and about your health uh, status on that app. If either of these is compromised, uh, then the entire efficacy of the app is uh, uh, is questionable, right? In fact, there is a recent study which was published uh, uh, in Lancet, uh, the medical journal. Okay, there is one study quoted in that by a study by Bulchandani et al. And they say that you know, in the context of COVID, if 50% of the transmission happens to be asymptomatic, which is true actually uh, uh, in the Indian context. Uh, uh, COVID testing actually reveals that many people who are discovered to have uh, uh, to be COVID positive are asymptomatic. Okay, it says that if 50% of the population of the transmission is asymptomatic, you need something like 90% app download for it to be epidemic which is a pretty huge uh, number, okay? The reason I'm saying it's a huge number is if you see the smartphone penetration uh, in the country, 2020 figures talk of something like around 31% uh, across the country, rural, urban uh, together. So that can give us a false confidence given that you know there is a very small population just 30 percent of the population has smartphones of the 30 percent of the population which has smartphones what percentage has downloaded the uh, the app of those who have downloaded the app how many have of them have given truthful information about themselves and about their health uh, uh, parameters right that uh, uh, raises significant questions. Add to that the issue of false positives and false negatives uh, and so on and so forth. Right. So there is a serious question on this. The question is why do people hesitate to download the app? Why do people uh, hesitate to uh, give accurate information uh, about themselves? One of the key uh, reasons, not the sole, there could be other reasons, is the issue of trust. How much do I trust that this data that I am giving myself about myself is not going to be used just for the purpose of helping me 
identify what is the potential risk for me. Okay, and if the trust is not there, then you have serious issues in terms of the quality of data. Sorry, that is coming in. Uh, so the broad framework to understand why this uh, trust uh, could be a, a critical issue and why uh, there are serious questions is a the usage of an app of this kind, which is for the interest uh, in the interest of everyone, is a to create awareness amongst the people in terms of how this app is uh, beneficial and make it voluntary. The moment you make it mandatory, questions about trust comes into picture. And we see in the Indian context, both in the current scenario of uh, uh, Aragya Setu and even with uh, 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 the Aadhaar uh, implementation, we have a significant, seen significant amount of jugglery with uh, words that, that have been used about whether it is mandatory or it is not mandatory. Just take one simple example. When the aviation uh, sector was being opened up, when the flights uh, were restored, the first day it was announced that you know you it is mandatory for you to download Aragya Setu if you want to uh, catch a flight. And people started questioning, how does Aragya Setu ensure or what guarantee does it give me whether or not the person who has a green status on his or her uh, Aragya Setu is indeed positive or not? There's no guarantee, right? So this whole, then the government said, no, it is not mandatory, but it is strongly recommended. Many argue that uh, this whole debate of whether it's mandatory or voluntary essentially boils down to de facto mandatory. That is, it's not mandatory on paper, but it is mandatory in practice. There is a trust issue uh, which comes in when you do this. The second thing is, is there a principle of data minimization? That is, what kind of data is being gathered from you when you have to use the app? Is every piece of data that is gathered essential for me to be able to deliver the health services in this uh, uh, case. Take, for example, one of the things that it asks you when you are, uh, I don't know if you have uh, downloaded the app, it will ask you to enter your profession. People ask, what does profession got to do uh, with my Aragisetu uh, 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 app uh, requirement, right? So one principle is gather just the bare minimum data that is required. And if you are gathering too much data, and this happens with the whole range of applications, both government and uh, private, you end up gathering much more data than what you need. The third thing is that of what I call scope creep. The government says that this data, or this app is being introduced for the purpose of helping you identifying the uh, tracing the contacts who may potentially be infected and therefore help you in terms of uh, uh, assessing what kind of a risk you have. And But there is no commitment from the government that this data that I'm giving you will not be used for any other purposes other than for this purpose. 
In fact, if you see the privacy policy of Aragya Setu app, it says that you know this data will be used primarily to uh, provide health services to you by the government. Just last week, the government has announced that there is an option for organizations which have more than 50 employees. They can integrate uh, with uh, Aragya Setu and as an employee, if I am required to give a concern, they will kind of know the status of all their employees. This is an example of something which was never in the mandate and which goes beyond the initial uh, scope uh, of what uh, the, uh, the app was. But this is now getting into sharing the data with private uh, uh, enterprises. The third one, uh, uh, the, the final concern I would talk of is, uh, is there a well-defined sunset clause? That is what happens once we tide over this current crisis. That is once this pandemic subsides, will this app continue to be there? Or is it going to be withdrawn? Because it has served its purpose. What happens to the data that we have gathered in these uh, few months? As of today, there is no clarity on these. So in the absence of these, there are apprehensions in terms of how would this data uh, be used in the long term? Would it be at, at some point of time used against me? Say, for example, would it be shared with some uh, insurance, health insurance companies? And would they be denying uh, uh, insurance for me because I had a severe case of uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, two months back? I have no idea. So until and unless you address these issues of transparency, data minimization, voluntariness, avoiding scope creep, very well-defined sunset clause, uh, you will have serious issues of trust. And if the trust is not there, usage will, will not be high. And the, even for the usage that is there, the, the quality of data would be suspect. Professor, if we talk about India's contact tracing app, Arogya Setu, it has been downloaded by 15 crore users according to government data on 11th August, which is 12% of India's population and around 30% of the total smartphone users in the country. The two reasons for this I can think of is the poor smartphone penetration and the low digital literacy, especially in the vulnerable age group. So how do we ensure that these contact tracing apps remain effective given that a study you quoted requires 90% of the population to use these apps for them to be effective? Yeah, I think this is the critical uh, question. We have to recognize uh, our uh, demography. We have to recognize the, the current rate of digital uh, literacy. We have to recognize the current state of technology uh, penetration. We can't wish it away. Okay. Having said that, uh, as you said, uh, it is about 15% coverage or whatever it is. And everyone knows that 15% uh, for any app of this kind uh, doesn't uh, make it a dependable app. Okay? It's, a, it's an impressive number, no doubt. It is an uh, uh, impressive number. But the danger uh, in this is I have seen people who say, Oh, my app shows that green status, so which means I'm pretty safe. There is nothing. But the fact is that, you know, this is the green status is based on a small percentage of population who have uh, installed this app with them. Okay. So it can result in that false confidence uh, that everything is okay. 
what we need to recognize is a while this technology is important i am not saying that this is not important this is an extremely important uh, uh, option to be able to trace the primary and then the secondary contacts and so on and so forth but to recognize that technology per se is not a panacea depending entirely on what data or what uh, uh, analysis my uh, uh, contact tracing app shows me would be a very dangerous thing and all researchers have uh, acknowledged that acknowledge that we should recognize and in particular for countries such as india uh, technology is not a substitute for other manual approaches technology should be seen as a a supplement to various other manual contact tracing processes various other practices such as your social distancing various other practices such as a continued mass testing uh, for covid i mean as you know uh, india stands way down at the bottom in terms of the, the rate at which we do these testing so recognize that contact tracing app is just one tool amongst all of these uh, as such and this is not a magic bullet having said that let's address the other point if it is a small percentage of our population today which has this app installed what are the segments which are in a way excluded uh, uh, from this i think of three uh, two broad uh, uh, segments okay one the senior citizens many of them uh, even if they have a phone they are not comfortable with using the smartphone i know my mother still uses a, a nokia phone with those uh, uh, big buttons because for her the dexterity uh, uh, of her uh, fingers is a constraint today so she needs a kind of a phone smartphones don't work for them and you can take a survey and you would find that most senior citizens still prefer the the good old uh, uh, nokia uh, 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 samsung uh, uh, phones so they can't use this uh, uh, app which is the other segment which uh, probably would not be uh, uh, represented adequately these are migrant workers and daily wage workers uh, the smartphone penetration amongst them is uh, uh, quite uh, poor why is this an issue because these are the two groups which i would say are the most vulnerable uh, uh, to the the current uh, uh, crisis that we are talking of senior citizens because most of them would be having comorbidities uh, it's extremely important to detect any uh, uh, infection uh, at an early stage migrant and daily wage workers because whatever we may say social distancing is a major challenge for them given the conditions in which uh, uh, they stay and if you fail to miss any kind of a spread of this uh, uh, disease amongst these two groups then we have a major challenge uh, uh, at hand so therefore it is important to recognize that you know it is not just for the it savvy people like you and me uh, if we have to reach out to all segments of the society we have no choice but to recognize that the technical approaches have to be complemented and they cannot replace they have to complement the significant amount of human or manual work that is required 
to beat uh, COVID-19. There is no way uh, uh, out of this. Professor, if we look into another aspect that is developing is the geopolitical crisis and countries are trying to impose a new form of data nationalism where they are demanding data localization and taking tough stance on privacy breaches. A recent example being the ban of Chinese apps by the Indian government due to privacy and security concerns. Going forward, what will be the implications of such policy decisions on the technology ecosystem in India? Ah, okay. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, I keep uh, reading about this uh, uh, data localization, uh, etc. But that's kind of, I think, missing uh, the point. One is to recognize, and I'm, I'm stepping back a little bit uh, uh, to your question. One is to recognize that India at this point of time does not have any data protection act. There is a data protection bill that was introduced, uh, data protection bill 2019, which was introduced uh, uh, in, in the parliament, uh, but that is not yet an act. Uh, having said that, uh, it is not true that there are no privacy uh, regulations in the country. There are some. Uh, one is there is actually a Supreme Court judgment, I think, in the, uh, what is known as the Puttaswamy uh, judge, uh, case 2017. Uh, Supreme Court has said that data privacy is a fundamental right, although our Constitution does not uh, uh, say that. Okay. And then subsequently, there was uh, some rules, SDPI rules, which were uh, framed uh, based on uh, Section 43A of the uh, IT uh, Act. And they deal with certain kind of a sensitive data and so on and so forth. Okay. So there are, there are some uh, frameworks, uh, not sufficient, I would uh, think. But coming back to the data, localization uh, issues and you keep hearing these uh, again and again even our IT minister has said multiple times we want uh, uh, the data to be hosted on uh, Indian uh, soil. Uh, this goes contrary to this whole uh, premise uh, on which the cloud-based services have seen uh, the growth that we have seen in the past uh, uh, few uh, years. Uh, very recently, during the pandemic, you must have uh, read about a case in the uh, the state of Kerala, where the government had contracted uh, uh, a U.S.-based company owned by, I think, an Indian national or a, a, a person of Indian uh, origin. Uh, there's a company by name Sprinkler that was given this contract to be able to analyze it is not just the the capturing of the data but the kind of an analytics that one does uh, on that uh, so kerala government has given a contract to that uh, uh, company to do the analytics on that data and there was a huge uh, outcry on the fact that it has been uh, data has been sent out to the the us uh, okay it went up to the there was a pil i think in the kerala high court and this whole thing came into uh, picture. But the question that people don't recognize is the focus of attention 
is really uh, should really not be on the data part of it but it should be on the data subject whose data are we talking of it is the data of yash it is the data of priyanka it is the data of uh, prasad and so on and so forth who happen to be residents of a particular country in this case residents of india so the jurisdiction the concern for the government they say is if the data is not residing in the country if it is hosted elsewhere how much control do we have in terms of who the data is shared with how the data is used and so on and so forth the argument is the jurisdiction really comes through the residence of the data subject and not the the data and that's a key one should uh, important you should place the individual at the center of this debate and not the technology not where the hardware is residing not where the uh, software is residing and so on and so forth and there are enough and more examples where the indian courts and even courts i know of uh, cases in uk uh, and uh, uh, and some of the european countries where they said that, that it doesn't matter in a case even if the data is outside of the country because it is pertaining to some individuals who happen to be our uh, uh, citizens you have to act as you have to obey you have to comply with the orders of the the respective court uh, uh, right so data localization to that extent in my uh, perspective is kind of uh, shifting the narrative uh, uh, away uh, uh, from the data subject the focus should be on the data subject and what protections do we guarantee the the individual that is the data subject about the privacy protections that we as a country will uh, we give uh, in the indian context as i said we do not have because we uh, uh, we don't have an act we don't have any uh, uh, framework and therefore there is an abuse uh, of the the privacy uh, irrespective of where the data is uh, uh, hosted okay but i also just give one, one example you know and it is the same government and i know a number of bureaucrats i work with several of them here in karnataka government a uh, number of bureaucrats the government of india has mandated that for their official correspondence they shall not use say for example a gmail account or any other uh, email id because you know i know where uh, your uh, uh, gmail uh, mailboxes uh, reside definitely not in uh, india but yet again and again i get correspondence from various government departments where the corresponding uh, officer in charge uh, sends me an email uh, about a meeting or the proceedings of a meeting or the agenda for a meeting significant confidential data it comes from their gmail account okay uh, so this there's a contradiction in what they say and what uh, they do but the point i want to drive home again is uh, the attention is really not so much on where the data is hosted but about whose data is hosted and what protections do we guarantee uh, to the person uh, whose data is being gathered professor building on the previous question how should a legal framework for data protection balance the imperatives for protecting user privacy and ensuring innovation in the industry also as we have mentioned we don't have any data protection law what can we draw from the data protection laws like the hipaa in the us and the gdpr in europe 
while drafting one for India? Hmm. Okay, I see two uh, aspects. Uh, the first one is this whole notion of uh, imperatives of protecting privacy and uh, ensuring innovation. Uh, that's a myth uh, that somehow enforcing or putting restrictions on the privacy inhibits uh, innovation or inhibits uh, uh, productivity growth. There is absolutely no evidence that there is a trade-off uh, between uh, uh, the two, right? These are two orthogonal uh, uh, dimensions. In fact, I would say that uh, where people have a trust about a particular service provider, that their privacy is being respected, uh, their privacy will not be violated. As customers or as service seekers, we are ready to pay a premium for those uh, 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 services, which are what I call the trustworthy systems or the trustworthy uh, uh, services. I'm deviating a little bit uh, away from the government uh, in this uh, context, but if you talk of the current uh, sharing economy that we are in, there are a significant number of platform-based uh, systems, right, which connect some service providers and service uh, uh, seekers who don't know each other. Now, how do I trust the platform? How do I trust the service provider before I can uh, uh, seek? A key aspect of that is really the, the trustworthiness of the, uh, the system. How transparent is the system about what data is being uh, uh, gathered from me and how the data is being given? And if I have a system which is the trustworthy, I'm ready to pay a premium. Okay, so people should recognize that there is a market. There is a pre there is a market that is out there for what I call a, uh, a privacy protected uh, uh, systems. People actually should see opportunities in developing systems which respect uh, uh, privacy. So there is no contradiction at all in terms of uh, ensuring privacy and uh, uh, ensuring. Uh, appropriate uh, climate for innovation and productivity growth. Coming to the other one, when you are talking of the data privacy laws, such as uh, HIPAA in the medical context in the US and the broader uh, GDPR in uh, Europe, European Union. Uh, European Union always has been uh, at the forefront, even before GDPR laws uh, kicked in. They had these uh, data uh, protectorates uh, uh, before. Okay, we, as I mentioned multiple times uh, this today, uh, yes, we don't have uh, a, a Data Privacy Act. Uh, we are uh, almost there and I hope that we will be there uh, soon. Uh, but you need to understand the, the context uh, of, of our journey uh, uh, so far. India was one of the first countries in the world to have uh, 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 drafted an IT Act which subsequently was modified, uh, the revised uh, one, the IT Act 2000 was what we had then uh, uh, adopted. Uh, so it doesn't really have strong uh, data privacy protection uh, clauses in that, but there are some sections which are there. In particular, I'm referring to the section uh, 43A of the IT Act. Is it sufficient? By no means uh, is it sufficient, but there are uh, uh, this, what, what is known as the uh, SDPI rules, 
which essentially SDPA is standing for sensitive personal data information. So this is specific to not any data privacy, but it is particular to very sensitive and very personal uh, data. This is uh, physical data about me, physiological data about me, my mental health, uh, uh, and my medical uh, history. Okay, so these uh, are the things which uh, are addressed uh, to a great extent by SDPI rules. So one has to go back and see to what extent uh, are our uh, medical apps. I'm not talking of just the contact tracing apps. There are a number of medical apps today out there in the market. Uh, a lot of uh, health tech uh, companies are out there. How many of them uh, are in compliance uh, with that? Uh, I would say a few. The second thing is I mentioned about the Puttaswamy judgment in 2017. Uh, Justice Chandrachud actually has uh, was uh, one of the key members on the bench uh, when it was declared that it was uh, uh, I, uh, privacy is a fundamental right. Uh, subsequent to that, there was a committee which was formed, what is known as the Sri Krishna Justice Sri Krishna uh, Committee, which submitted its uh, 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 draft in the year uh, 2018, uh, known as the uh, uh, PDP uh, 2018 draft bill. Okay. Then based on that, the PDP bill was introduced in 2019 in the parliament. Uh, there has been no discussion whatsoever at this point of uh, uh, as of now. One hopes that before it is passed, there would be reasonable uh, discussion. But what has also happened is between the 2018 draft bill and the 2019 bill, which was introduced, there have been a significant uh, modifications. That is, the government did not accept all the recommendations of that uh, uh, committee. One of the things, uh, and with this is critical, is as per the 2019 uh, bill, which is in the parliament, it permits, uh, I'll read out here, it says, access of the personal data to any government for security based uh, principles which was supposed to be based on the two principles of necessity and proportionality that is if a government department should be given authorization to access personal uh, information there should be a necessity established and the amount of data or the uh, details that they want should be proportionate to the necessity and it should be authorized. What the PDP bill 2019 is, it kind of takes away these principles of necessity and proportionality. It says the central government has the power to exempt any government agency from the purview of the bill or any specific provisions of the bill. So this is kind of giving a blanket exemption that the government, whenever it wants, it can waive uh, uh, these uh, key criteria. And there's no, I think no detail mentioned in terms of on what basis would they be granting this uh, uh, exemption. The second thing that they have changed uh, in this is uh, whenever we pass this act, one of the requirements of, of the act is to set up what is known as a data protection authority. In a way, it's kind of a regulator. 
that data protection authority would have significant powers and who would nominate members to this uh, authority as for the draft there should be a judicial member who is a judicial member it should be either the chief justice of india or other senior supreme court judge and uh, a cabinet secretary and a secretary ministry of uh, uh, electronics and it uh, and so on and so forth what the 2019 bill has done is it has taken away the the role of the judicial member which would mean that the members of this uh, data protection authority would now be appointed purely by a bunch of bureaucrats right so that takes away the checks and balances okay so i hope that some of these would be uh, discussed before the act is uh, uh, passed uh, i'm just highlighting the negative there are several positives in the uh, bill uh, uh, by the way but i hope there is a reasonable uh, discussion and some of these uh, would be addressed to make us be able to compare with say uh, the gdpr uh, requirements or other uh, requirements in the uh, other countries until and unless we have we reach that situation we are pretty much going to be operating on an ad hoc uh, uh, basis and i hope uh, we will reach there sooner than later sure professor uh, so going back again to the uh, uh, discussion point of uh, data privacy in pandemic time in an article uh, in the new indian express that you wrote recently you have talked about building an open source platform for sharing de-identified pandemic data where experts can voice their opinions and seek timely actions from developers so in indian context who would be the key stakeholders and what would be their responsibilities if we go ahead with such a platform okay there are a couple of things that come in uh, uh, if you are familiar with the the open source paradigm okay uh, one of the statements uh, that the open source movement makes is given enough number of eyeballs i'm talking of the open source software uh, movement okay but that is true for any open source uh, 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 initiative software or otherwise given enough number of eyeballs all errors become shallow what it means is if a code a piece of code is open for anyone to uh, inspect and audit bugs if there are any in that uh, software cannot remain hidden for too long they will surface out right so therefore they become shallow it is much easier because the whole community is engaged in inspecting that's the principle on which the entire open source uh, movement uh, uh, works okay so therefore uh, when the arogya setu app was uh, launched one of the first things that uh, several citizen groups or several privacy groups and several researchers who work in the area of uh, uh, open source and privacy have been pushing to make this whole source code Uh, uh open source so that one can inspect uh, and figure out what is happening what is being done right where is the data being sent out to where is it being stored uh, and so on and so forth okay because the arogya setu app when it was launched it not only did not uh, open its source code 
it also actually kind of a prevented any kind of a reengineering uh, from being done to understand what is happening. Okay, so thankfully, at some point of time, about a month or two months back, I think uh, the minister announced that we are uh, open sourcing the code uh, for the Android uh, version. And just about last week, after a good two months uh, gap, they have now open sourced the code for the, the iOS version of the app. OK, uh, having said that, uh, we are now very happy that it's all open source. Now anybody, everybody can inspect if there are any bugs or if there are any concerns about how the data is, who the data is being shared with and so on and so forth. That is kind of half the story because what is being open sourced as of today is just the, the client side of the code. The server side of the code still uh, remains uh, opaque. Uh, so that issue still remains. Assuming that even uh, one hopes that that will be uh, done uh, uh, soon, open sourced, uh, who would be the stakeholders? Pretty much anyone, anyone uh, uh, who wants to do a public audit of that uh, code, it could be the privacy groups, it could be people from the academia, it could be the primary user groups uh, who would be the stakeholders. Uh, because as of today, uh, this entire uh, development of the app is driven by NIC, not the health ministry, and a few private uh, uh, organizations. iSpirit is uh, is one and, and so on. iSpirit, uh, just by the way, was an organization which was also strongly pushing for Aadhaar uh, uh, implementation. Okay, so it could be open to pretty much everyone. There could be a lot of students like you and uh, uh, others who have an interest in this uh, would be uh, auditing and uh, uh, evaluating, analyzing the code and then give feedback and the feedback uh, if it is constructive feedback and uh, should be incorporated back in this. And that is how it is uh, in, in, in most countries, right? It is not a closed one. The second one is this whole thing of, uh, again, why the open source is, is important is about, you know, how is my data stored? How long is it stored? Okay, uh, the privacy uh, rules of the app say one thing and then somewhere else it, it says uh, something, how the data is stored for three months or six months and so on and so forth. At some stage, the government says, uh, your data is de-identified, uh, what they call the uh, digital, there is a digital de-identifier which is generated uh, for the data that is being passed on from your handset to uh, the server and so on. But a number of researchers have come back and say, this kind of a static de-identifying approach actually doesn't help address the, uh, the privacy uh, uh, concern because this kind of a de-identification, what it gives me is, it gives me still the ability, if I wish to, to reconstruct the data and re-establish the identity of the individual. Okay, so it kind of gives me a false confidence that, you know, there is a, a privacy that is being addressed. Uh, if it is open source, if, it, if you know not just how it is uh, being handled on your handset, but also how it is being handled on the uh, backend, 
uh, one would know how, what is happening. The second thing is the notion of what if I want to quit? I have given some data. I don't want to have my data with the with this government anymore or with the department uh, anymore. There are some specifications now they have given where you can request that you want to exit and your data to be deleted. If I don't really see the source code uh, at the server side, how do I know if the data is indeed actually getting deleted after 30 days or 60 days or whatever uh, it is as it is being committed? Okay. The last point I uh, just want to drive home is from an academic perspective, I think people should understand the difference between anonymization and de-identification. They are not the same and people think that de-identification is anonymization. Anonymization is essentially we are kind of a removing all possibility of identifying the individual whose data we are referring to. Uh, whereas de-identification is removing a few identifying tags from the data. But when I combine two or three different sets of a data, I can reconstruct the, the identification part of it. So there are these nuances. Ordinary citizen may not understand these, but definitely privacy groups, privacy researchers, people from the academia and some smart uh, uh, students like you should be able to uh, uh, understand and inspect these and point out if there are any uh, uh, deficiencies in the way the system is uh, designed. So it is not so much to question uh, the government or somebody who has developed the app. This whole open sourcing is to help improve this, the strength of the application because this is a community application. So it's important to have it open source in that context. Uh, Professor, one last question for you. Sure. Uh, so yeah. in, in the in the context of the entire discussion that we had, mm -hmm. uh, how can we answer a larger philosophical question of how much can we allow the state to intervene in an individual's life? <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a tricky uh, uh, question. Uh, there are different scenarios. Okay. Uh, there is a Disaster Management Act uh, uh, for example, Disaster Management Act gives some special uh, uh, provisions for the government because the, the time to respond uh, would be very uh, minimal. So even the, uh, I think one should read, actually this is a fantastic judgment uh, written by uh, Justice Chandrachud uh, in the Puttaswami uh, judgment where he actually talks of uh, uh, this entire, while he talks of uh, uh, the the privacy being a, a fundamental uh, right. He also talks of issues where uh, one has to forego uh, a certain amount of uh, privacy if it is for the greater uh, good of the of the community. Okay, uh, but what one sees is a risk of every time using phrases such as national security requirements and so on and trying to kind of a take cover under these uh, uh, requirements where you violate the privacy for every application. So there is a difference between say for example uh, my commercial transaction on a site like Amazon versus a, uh, a, 
a transaction on a site like uh, say uh, 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 PharmEasy or some of the internet-based uh, uh, pharmacies, right? Both are private enterprises. But the kind of data that you share with them is very different. One is one uh, helps you uh, reconstruct the medical history of the person, which is uh, very private information about uh, uh, yourself. And one uh, probably helps you reconstruct my buying habits uh, uh, or what kind of a gadgets I want to buy and so on. And I'm sure you understand the difference between uh, these two and therefore the privacy requirements between the two are very different. I, I'll just give one uh, closing uh, example maybe. There is this organization called Broadcast Engineering Consultants uh, Limited. This is a government of India enterprise uh, which works on the, under the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting. So they have uh, issued a tender asking companies to express interest in supplying certain healthcare equipment. Mind you, this is for healthcare, which would attract maximum amount of privacy concerns. Am I right? Okay. So under this, they talk of items that they want to buy, which is a thermal imaging system, handheld thermal imaging system, optical thermal fever sensing system, uh, COVID-19 patient tracking tool, and so on and so forth. But when you start going through the specifications that they have given for these, uh, it says the equipment is branded as an intelligence investigation platform and a tactical tool to detect, prevent, and investigate threats to national security using CDR, IPDR, tower, mobile phone, forensics data, etc., etc., and so on. One wonders how national security uh, comes into picture when you're purchasing medical uh, equipment. So throwing in phrase like national security, essentially kind of the government tries to kind of uh, uh, take this always active uh, regime of surveillance in the guise of what I call a managing a pandemic. So there is no blanket uh, statement on what kind of a privacy, how much should I uh, forego and how much should I uh, uh, retain. Uh, there are trade-offs, everyone understands, but the question is, uh, as I mentioned, the necessity and proportionality. Is the privacy that you are giving away in proportion to the necessity of the service uh, provider, be it the uh, government or be it anyone else? I think that is the key. I don't want to make a uniform statement of uh, this much and no more. Yeah, uh, so thank you, Professor, for your time. Those were some wonderful insights that we got from you during this podcast. And it was a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Prasad. Thank you, uh, Pravar, Yash and uh, Priyanka. So that's it from the IMB podcast today. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Do send in your comments, feedback and suggestions, and we'll be happy to read them. Have a great day. Thank you.